0: In 1637, the settlers—we might today call them colonizers—but the settlers, in what was to become the town of Dedham, Massachusetts, wanted to start a church. I would be remiss on this pre-Thanksgiving Sunday if I didn't name that the genocide of the people indigenous to this land had already begun at that time by the Spanish in the early 1500s, and by the English in the early 1600s. We are so often taught two different histories, and I acknowledge the complications of that history today. For today's purposes, though, in 1637, there were roughly 30 families who wanted to start a church. The problem was that those roughly 30 families didn't know each other and they didn't know what sort of church to begin. They were newcomers to what to them was the American wilderness. They had only had time to set up enough government to apportion land, build and equip homes, and begin the work of farming. Religiously, they were strangers to each other. However, the exigencies of survival and the religious call of their hearts imposed the need for them to come together in community. To that end, they began a year-long series of cottage meetings, each organized around discussion of a particular question. We might think that in order to know each other's religious views and needs, that these folks would have chosen topics like salvation, damnation, predestination, or morality. But no, they did not. What they mostly discussed were matters of civil organization, because in their understanding, the church would reflect the larger ethic of society. And what they longed for was sincere religious association based in love and founded in freedom. Sound familiar? In the England they had left behind, these meetings that they were having would have been illegal. The bishops of the English churches have begun to crack down on the ministers, the scholars, and the laypeople who looked at the lessons of the Bible stories in a political and social light. Discontent grew, not with church theology so much as with the ecclesiastical structure that dictated every facet of local church affairs. The idea of a free church took shape among the people a free church, a church whose individual congregations were controlled by no outside authority. This was the sort of church the small group in Dedham, Massachusetts decided to build. It was a church much like its neighbors and much like the other churches that would be built in New England in the coming decades. A church gathered by mutual consent rather than mutual belief, founded in covenant, rather than creed — that's really important — and governed by the congregation itself, just like we are today. Make no mistake, though, this group did not hold widely varying theological beliefs that would have made it unable to exist as a creedal church, but their belief that churches should be self-governing organizations gathered in the spirit of mutual love was paramount. This basis for gathering and governing a church by congregational determination was described 10 years after the founding of the Dedham Church in a document known commonly as the Cambridge Platform. Or, are you ready for this? More formally, a platform of church discipline gathered out of the word of God and agreed upon by the elders and messengers of the churches assembled in the Synod at Cambridge in New England. How's that for a title, right? So the Cambridge platform is what we have. The Cambridge platform defined congregational polity, and basically it set out a structure for churches founded on the Christian New Testament descriptions of early churches. It defined matters of church officers, ministry, membership, and cooperation between churches. Although changes in practice have been made in even as early as the second generation, that Cambridge platform remains a defining document for for denominations, including ours, including Unitarian Universalism, that continue to practice congregational polity, how we're governed. We're governed by congregational polity. We come together based not on creed, not what we believe, but by mutual agreement, by covenant, how we agree to be together. As I said earlier, in 1961, the Unitarians and Universalists consolidated into one shared faith, as tranquil streams that meet and merge, as that song says. I want you to understand, to know, that you are part of something larger. We belong to something larger than this, just this little church in this on Gleedsville Road. We belong to something larger. We are part of this living tradition of Unitarian Universalism. And we have a responsibility to that larger something. The Cambridge platform lays it out. It says we're accountable to each other, not just here within this congregation, but congregation to congregation, minister to minister, minister to congregation, and congregation to minister. In 1961, with the consolidation, the UUA, Unitarian Universalist Association, was formed. Bylaws were adopted for this merger, including article Two. What is Article Two? You wonder. It's the, It's the principles and purposes of our Unitarian Universalist Association. Right now, they're in the front of the hymnal. You don't have to. You don't have to pick it up, but um, it may be familiar. The inherent worth and dignity of every every person. Um, the right to con- the conscience and the use of the democratic process, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, the interdependent web, etc. So today, there are seven principles and six sources, except in 1961, that wasn't the version of the principles that we know now. Our current principles were adopted in 1984, 23 years after the merger. We also didn't start out with those same six sources. The Earth-based religion source, the sixth source, was added in 1995, nine years after the revision of the principles, and 34 years after the merger. We call this a living tradition for a reason. It's important to know where we come from, and equally important to determine where we're going. To know that revelation is not sealed so do you know where that comes from so there's a canon of all of the books in the holy bible right and what they decided at some point was this is getting a little out of hand and we really need to codify this and keep people from going too far out and we kind of want to control them so let's just determine that this is the number of books and we're going to close the canon and that's it so that's what happened but but unitarian universalists go not so much for us, you know? Um, That's not really who we are. We believe, uh, James Luther Adams laid it out in his five smooth stones, that revelation is not sealed for us. We believe that as we get new information and and discover new things, that we also draw the circle wider, and we learn how to be more accountable to each other and to the larger world, and that it's okay for us to change. In fact, it's so important that it's written into our documents. Section C-2.4, Freedom of Belief. Nothing herein shall be deemed to infringe upon the individual freedom of belief which is inherent in the Universalist and Unitarian heritages or to conflict with any statement of purpose, covenant, or bond of union used by any congregation, unless, unless such is used as a creedal test. We are not a creedal faith. Written into our principles and purposes, this freedom of belief. It doesn't mean we can believe whatever we want but it, it believes that we believe whatever we must believe for ourselves. And this is why we as a congregation can't say that in order to be a Unitarian Universalist, you must believe in the principles because then what does it become? A creed, right. So we believe so strongly in a free faith that it's written into our guidelines that every 15 years, Article two is up for examination and revision. Let's just let that sink in, those of you who really love the principles, right? I really love the principles and purposes, which we do. The last commission to review and revise was 2010. My former minister and colleague, Tom Owen Toll, was on that commission and they took the principles and they tweaked them and rewrote them a little bit. Uh, But those revisions did not get approved by the General Assembly. Tom did not seem surprised, nor did he seem disappointed when we were talking about it. But even then, they weren't left unedited. In 2018, we changed one of our sources from Words and Deeds of Prophetic Women and Men To words and deeds of prophetic people to um, get rid of the of the gender binary. We are a people of change, my friends. A bunch of heretics, really, is what we are. Well, guess what time it is? It's time to look again at Article Two. And here are the reasons that here are some of the things that have come up to the UUA board. There's, being, there's concern that the principles are being calcified and that people are starting to understand them as dogma. And so with the language so precious that changes were objectionable, rather than we expect change and we seek out change and refinements and advances. And that took a wide range of forms from literal plaques with the principles on them to curricula to that's the way I've always known it. Not, not a bad thing necessarily, but, Not necessarily who we are. There have been complaints that the principles are too wordy and non poetic and they're not memorable and pithy enough. So the UUA board has been taking all this in and mulling all this history and the criticisms over for at least four years before they recently launched the commission, the Article II Study Commission. So Bob, you want to pop up that slide? So the charge to the Article II Commission this time was different. They urged the Commission to please not feel like that they had to hew closely to the form and words of the past, but rather to try to bring forth something that captured the content, meaning, and thrust of the principles, and that addressed some of the criticisms, and that offers us a new and rich way of seeing, understanding, and expanding upon our shared values and principles. And they were invited to see love as the center. And so this is what they've come up with so far, and this is the second draft. It's a faithful response to that charge, I think. I have a shortened version of these for you to take home if you'd like to see more expanded. It's really shortened, and this is just the second draft. There's lots more um, that's going to go into it, but you can take that home and ponder it. Just be clear, I'm not giving you a complete or final document. You can find the whole thing online by searching for UUA Article Two draft, if you'd like to see it in its entirety but I do invite you to spend time with these and see how it lands in your body and in your psyche or on your soul or whatever word works for you. How does it resonate? The commission asks us to read it in three ways. First, it says, read it the first time just to observe how you feel and then give it some time and then read it a second time to observe what it makes you think and then give it some time, and then read it a third time or before thinking about any suggestions that you have. So let me stress again, a draft, it's not a finished document, but you can see the things that swirl around love. Pluralism, interdependence, equity, evolution, justice, generosity. It probably has quite a way to go. I need to spend some time with it myself. And as almost anything in the UU faith, it matters not as much the product at the end, but the process by which we get there. It matters how we treat each other as we move through this. I just didn't want this to be happening without all of you knowing. Because we're connected to all those UU congregations out there, and they're connected to us. The Cambridge platform says so. So this is an introduction. We'll revisit it later on because it matters. It matters that we know that we are a living faith. And a living faith changes over time. It's written into our documents. It's such a liminal time right now. UUA President Susan Frederick Gray describes it, says that we're in the great churn of change. Systems and practices that we relied on are breaking down and shifting. And while what is needed is still being imagined, that it's not here yet, we're different than we were. We can't help but be different who are we now how will we rise to meet this challenge we are in our own process of discernment about that as we look at our how we live out this new mission statement kindling the flame of love and justice to nurture and heal ourselves each other and our world what does that mean what does that look like for us in real time so we are on a parallel track i feel with what is happening in our larger ua movement it feels chaotic a little i've recently been reminded though that gratitude is heavier than chaos gratitude is heavier than chaos it's like i just be with that a minute i get the um, the vision of a uh, the image of a one of those weighted blankets You know, that's very comforting, after all that's swirling on. So take that home with you and ponder it in your heart, and experience what it means for gratitude at this time to be greater than chaos. Gratitude can change us because we're too busy being grateful to be fearful. We are not a people of fear. We are a people of faith. A faith that reveres the past, but trust the dawning future more as the hymn goes. Prophetic Church, the future waits your liberating ministry. Go forward in the power of love. Proclaim a truth that makes us free. That was our charge at merger 61 years ago, and is our charge today. To build new ways of being to work to liberate all of us, to let love be at the center and gratitude be a spiritual practice. May we be the channels of love that this faith demands of us, knowing that we are connected in mystery and miracle to so much that is larger than ourselves.